What's up, Biggies Nation, and welcome back inside the Igloo. I'm your host, Tim Best. The first official day of fall is on Monday, which means we are another step closer to the start of college hoop season. Before you know it, November 5th is going to be here. And I'm just fired up right now. I wish it was November 5th right now, because right now, we're expecting summer-like temperatures over the weekend. And again, first day of fall is on Monday. Mother Nature needs to figure out what season we're in right now. But I know for a fact, fall will be in full swing by November 5th. And college basketball is going to be back. And my life's going to be good again. Don't get me wrong. I like college football. But I'm telling you, college basketball and just the road to March Madness Nothing like it. And just a side note before I get started with breaking down non-conference schedules and conference schedules for that matter of DePaul and Georgetown, let me get in my soapbox for just a minute about college football and college basketball and why college basketball is that much better than college football. With March Madness, anything can happen. Just look at what happened a couple years ago. UMBC was a 16th seed, and they beat the number one team in the country, Virginia. You don't see that in college football anymore because you only have a four-team playoff featuring the four very best teams in the country, and it's almost guaranteed that one of them is going to be Alabama. And in all likelihood, the other another one's going to be Clemson. And then the other two, you kind of know where they're going to come from. The Big 12, the Big 10, maybe the Pac-12. And maybe the Big Ten. (laughs) Big 12, excuse me. In college hoops, everybody gets a shot. Anyone can find a way to make it into the big dance, and anyone can find a way to make it all the way. It can happen, and that's what makes college basketball that much better than college football. Okay, rant over. Let's start. Last week, I broke down Butler and Creighton's schedules, and now it's on continuing down the alphabet. We're heading to Chicago now with the DePaul Blue Demons. DePaul had arguably their best season in the Big East in over a decade last year. They went 7-11 in conference. They made it to the CBI Championship Series but lost to South Florida, and they finished over 500. That's kind of a big deal if you're DePaul. And I commend DePaul for being able to pull that off for being mediocre for the past decade plus. Well, unfortunately, the catalyst behind that great season, Max Struess, he's gone now. So is Eli Kane. So is Femi Alugibi. They lose quite a bit. And now they have to really go back to the drawing board as they get ready for a new season and a younger roster, which only features a couple seniors. The lone seniors being Jalen Coleman-Lands and uh, Schreiner, the transfer point guard. So, however, they do have Paul Reed back, and there's a very good argument that he could be a potential All-Big East talent. Charlie Moore could be eligible for them this year to start a point guard. However, his eligibility is kind of up in the air right now as he transferred from Kansas. But he's coming back home to a city that he can call home. 
in Chicago. He played at Cal for his first year, then he transferred to Kansas, played a year there, and now he's here at DePaul. Again, his eligibility is up in the air right now, but if he does play this year, that could give DePaul a well-needed boost at the point guard position. That guy, I saw him play at Cal his freshman year against Seton Hall in the Pearl Harbor Invitational. Even as a freshman, I was thinking, wow, this kid is really, really good. But if he's not eligible, that puts him in a tighter spot. We'll definitely know that the starting point guard, no matter what, if Charlie Moore is ruled ineligible for the season, it will be Devin Gage, the junior. And they also have some other talent around him. Jalen Butts comes to mind at the power forward position. Meanwhile, let's take a look at their non-conference schedule. Now, a few days ago, they added another game for December 8th. They're going to be hosting Buffalo at Wintrust Arena. Now, this won't be the same Buffalo team that had a tremendous season a year ago, earned a sixth seed in the big dance, and then lost in the second round. This ain't the same Buffalo team anymore. They lost a lot from that team. It was a veteran group, but the... I still think they kind of reloaded, but again, they are nowhere near as good as they were a year ago. So let's break it down from the top. They have three games in the first four days of the regular season. November 5th, they take on Alcorn State. November 6th against Chicago. And then November 8th against Fairleigh Dickinson. I mean, this is a cakewalk of a three-game stretch. If If they even find a way to just not blow any of these teams out, we got a problem. And let me just say this. November 6th, they play Chicago. Chicago, too, is a Division II team. And for Chicago, they're counting this as an exhibition game, not against their record. DePaul is counting that for their record. That is horrible. If you're a D1 team and you schedule a team that's not D1 as part of your regular season schedule and count it towards your record, your credibility, for me, it goes out the drain. And I got a huge problem with DePaul scheduling Chicago. And I'll get into the fact that Providence, I'll get into them next week, they scheduled Merrimack in the regular season. And they're D- Merrimack's D2 as well. They play in the NE10, the same conference as a team about an hour west of me, LeMoyne plays in. Yeah, don't even get me started about that. That's just absolutely terrible. That's why I'm not even going to, get to the rest of the schedule in non-conference, I'm just going to grade this a C. Because there are some difficult gains, but the fact that they scheduled the D2 team in the regular season schedule, that's horrible. I'm not even going to beat around the bush with that. That's weak. That's pathetic. So anyways, then their first real challenge, which they are going to lose, will be Veterans Day at Iowa there's no doubt they're going to lose that game in Iowa City. They'll bounce back five days later against Cornell at home, and then a week. Then they have a week off before they head to Boston College for the final stretch of a home-and-home home series. Last year, they played Boston College in Chicago, and they lost a heartbreaking game last season. So it'll be interesting to see how they respond uh, this time at the Conti Forum in Chestnut Hill, Mass. Three days later, they'll return home to take on Central Michigan two days before Thanksgiving. And then on Black Friday, they have a matinee game at Minnesota, game they're probably going to lose. 
And speaking of the games that they're going to lose, here's another one they're going to lose. December 4th is part of the Big East Big 12 Alliance. They're going to take on Texas Tech, the defending national runner-ups. And I just don't think there's any way they beat the Red Raiders in Chicago. I really don't buy it. And then I feel like they're going to bounce back somehow against Buffalo and beat them. Don't ask me why. I just got a feeling that they're going to win that game. And then they'll also beat uh, UIC on December 14th. At Cleveland State, it's kind of a weak road game, which they should win. And then they close out non-conference on December 21st against Crosstown rival Northwestern. Last year, DePaul had a huge lead on the road in Evanston against Northwestern, and they blew it. So I think they're not going to let that same mistake happen again. I think they're going to finish strong and win that game. Actually, now that I think about it, I don't think that DePaul is going to beat Northwestern. I, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Or, or let me let me step let me take a step back. I say they beat Northwestern, but they lose to Buffalo because I think Buffalo still has quite a bit of experience getting a couple uh, transfers into their program. But I'm telling you, it's going to be a tough transition under a new head coach since Nate Oates left. But I feel like Buffalo will still have a good enough team to go into Chicago and beat the Blue Demons. So moving into their conference schedule. I mean, right off the bat, a couple tough games, but luckily for them, they're both at home. They got Seton Hall December 30th and then Providence on January 4th. Now, for some reason, DePaul has Providence's number for some reason because they have now split regular season meetings in each of the last four years, including winning three of the last four meetings in Chicago. And shockingly, Providence has actually done better against Georgetown during this last four-year span than they have against DePaul. They're 6-2 and two against Georgetown, but they're 4-4 four four against DePaul. It's kind of an anomaly, and I feel like that trend's going to continue into 2020. I think DePaul's going to find a way to beat Providence at Wintrust Arena in that second conference game. I don't see them beating Seton Hall in the conference opener. And then they have an East Coast road swing. They're at St. John's at the Garden on January 11th, and then three days later they'll visit Villanova. Three-game homestand coming up after that against Butler, Creighton, and St. John's. Then they travel to Seton Hall. Then a matchup at Marquette February 1st, start off the month of February. Then they host Xavier on February 4th, and then on the road at Georgetown at Creighton the next two games. Then they're home against Nova and Georgetown at Xavier Butler to close out February and then home against Marquette and then at Providence. The way I see it, I think DePaul is only going to win three conference games this year. I only see them going three and 15. Their only wins against Providence, St. John's, and I don't know why, but for some reason I've noticed, I really study trends with Big East teams and how they do in certain situations. But Every other year since the 2015-16 season, Marquette and DePaul have split. And then in the odd years, 2017-2019, Marquette swept them. And for some reason, I got a feeling that trend's going to continue. And I think DePaul is going to find a way to steal a win 
from Marquette late in the season on senior night on March 3rd. So, if the Big East wasn't so tough, DePaul would do much better. But considering how much better everyone is, I only see DePaul going 3-15 and 15 in conference. And, and now that I think about it, I think DePaul is going to lose to Northwestern now. I've been so back and forth on that matchup. But now for some reason, I just think Northwestern, I mean, they've proven they're Chicago's team right now and in the city of Chicago. I know Notre Dame's pretty close by, but they're not in the state of Illinois to begin with. But give me Northwestern at DePaul. And giving DePaul a 10-21 and 21 overall record, that is not going to be a good season for the Blue Demons, finishing 10-21 and 21 overall in the regular season, in my opinion. I hope that they exceed expectations. They have the talent to do so, but I still think they're a year away from, you know, establishing themselves again as a legitimate team in the Big East and not a cellar dweller. So when I come back next up on the list, we're going to be breaking down the Georgetown Hoyas and their non-conference schedule as well as their conference schedule and their outlook as they look to make their first NCAA tournament in four years. Welcome back inside the Igloo now. In that last segment, I got to go back and correct myself. Georgetown was looking for their first NCAA tournament appearance in five years. And I think this is the year that they're going to come back to the NCAA tournament. The last year they made it was 2015 as a number four seed. They finished tied for second in the Big East that year. Now, their non-conference schedule, I will say that compared to past years, especially the one from two years ago, that was a that was an absolute mess. And they only played one good team in that non-conference schedule that year, and they lost to them. That was Syracuse. Other than that, they played nobody and went 10-1. and one. That's because that schedule was a joke. This schedule, on the other hand, not a joke. And I think it's actually pretty good. Not great, but it's not bad. Let me, let me put it that way. It's not good. Well, it's, I should say it's not great, but it's not bad bad. You know what I mean? It's decent. It's a decent non-conference schedule. I graded a B minus. So here is Georgetown's non-conference schedule. I graded it a B minus because of the fact that they play so many home games and they really don't take on that many legit tournament contenders this year. So they start off with a four game homestand against Mount St. Mary's, Central Arkansas, Penn State and Georgia State. The the big game in that's obviously Penn State. Penn State's looking to make it back to the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2011. They were the NIT champions back in 2018. They had a bad year last year. However, they did beat Michigan at home. I I do remember that. And that was a bit of a shock. And that was kind of late in the season. So Penn State is kind of carrying that momentum from that into this year, and they're expecting, I think they're, to me, a top 9 or 10 seed in the NCAA tournament. I think they're in that 9 to 10 range. However, I do have Georgetown winning all four of those games, but that Penn State game is going to be a barn burner in D.C. And I won't be shocked if Penn State fans travel well for that game. I think this is the first time you can look at Penn State and say, okay, this is a pretty good basketball team that they got. First time since Taylor Battle was running the point guard for them. 
So after that, they'll head to New York City for two games in Madison Square Garden as part of the 2K Empire Classic. They'll take on Texas first, a game in which I think they'll win. And if they win, in all likelihood, and I think it's going to happen, they draw Duke in the championship game the following night, November 22nd. And as good as Georgetown is, Duke is just that much better. And I that's the only game I legitimately see Georgetown losing in their non-conference schedule. Well, I'm the definitively, that's the only one they're definitely going to lose. Now, I say they're going to beat UNC Greensboro at home, and then I think they're going to falter in a road situation at Oklahoma State. And just hear me out on this. Gallagher-Iber Arena, I know Oklahoma State is not that great, they haven't been really good in at least five years. But for some reason, I think Georgetown's just going to, in their first true road game, I think they're going to falter a little bit. I think OK State's going to take advantage of it. However, they're going to bounce back in the last game of that uh, short mini Southwest road trip. They go to SMU December 7th. I see them winning that game. And then I see them winning out the rest of the non-conference schedule, beating Syracuse. UMBC, Sanford, and American to finish 11-2 and at a conference. Which is a really good mark for the Hoyas. Now, in conference, the way that I see it, I think Georgetown's going to go 10-8. and Last year, they were 9-9, and which exceeded expectations because I had them at 7-11 and last year. Again, they went 9-9. and Made it to the NIT, uh, but they got bounced in the first round by Harvard. But I, I genuinely see this team back in the NCAA tournament. And But to talk about their Big E schedule, they start off with three of their first four games on the road, and they're all against old-school Big East rivals. New Year's Eve, they're at Providence. Three nights later, a Friday night game, a late one at Seton Hall. Five nights after that, January 8th, they take on St. John's. And then January 11th, they are at Villanova at the Wells Fargo Center. But luckily for them, they really don't have that many road games all bunched together. Except for December, uh, February 15th through the 26th, they have to go to the Midwest for three out of four games in that stretch. They're at Butler on the 15th, at DePaul on the 22nd, and then they make the short drive from Chicago to Milwaukee to take on Marquette on February 26th. And then they close out with two out of three at home. March 1st, they'll take on Xavier in a huge game on CBS at Creighton on March 4th. And then they close out with Villanova at home, a game I actually have Georgetown winning to close out the regular season. And that's going to get them over that 20-win plateau to go into the Big East tournament at 21-10. and 10. So... And the way that I have things panning out, they will get the four seed in the Big East tournament, in my opinion. And then I think they're going to go to the NCAA tournament, potentially as a seven seed. That's where I have them right now. But realistically, I mean, I don't see them any at the very worst, in my opinion. I think they'll be a nine. But their ceiling, to me, they could land a top five seed if they really see a lot of development from their young backcourt, James Akinjo and Mac McClung, as well as their uh, 
second-year power forward Josh LeBlanc, and they're also going to need Omer Yurtsevin to really step in and essentially kind of put up the same production that Jesse Govan did at the center position. I know it's a lot to ask, but Omer Yurtsevin has that kind of talent. However, he just doesn't have that outside shot the way Jesse Govan did. But I'll tell you what, if you're a Hoya fan, you got a lot of reasons to be excited. A pretty good home slate in uh, in the non-conference, big games against Penn State and Syracuse. Potentially get to play Duke in the Garden. I think Georgetown might actually give him some fits. I really, really believe that. Now, the big question with Georgetown, and I know John Fanta mentioned it uh, on the schedule release special, if Georgetown can play defense, man, the things that they can accomplish. Because last year, defense was a huge issue. I mean, I'll give a couple examples. The game against Seton Hall in Newark and the game against Seton Hall in the Big East Tournament. They gave up 90 to Seton Hall at the Rock in February. And then a month later in the Garden, they absolutely got manhandled in the first half. They got outscored 53-28, to and they let Miles Powell put up 29 by himself. You know you're having a bad night when one player on another team is outscoring your entire team at halftime. But I feel like they're going to turn a corner, not become a defensive stalwart, but just enough where they'll be formidable and actually turn themselves into competitive force and be able to win some games thanks to their defense. So that's the way I'm seeing things with the Hoyas. And next week, I got Marquette in Providence, so obviously stay tuned for that. But I got my icebreaker about a funny conversation I had with a couple guys on the baseball team I actually worked for this summer. I'll touch on that for my icebreaker after this. All right, it is now time for this week's icebreaker. So for those of you that don't know, during the summer here in upstate New York, I work for a summer collegiate baseball team called the Utica Blue Sox. Now, this team generates talent from all over the country and from some pretty big-time schools, a lot of them D1. For example, we had a shortstop from Kennesaw State, a first baseman from Appalachian State, and our biggest talent, another first baseman, from Mississippi State, a team that just made it to the College World Series this year. Now, that kid, whose name is Josh Hatcher, probably going to be a future MLB draft pick. I'll be the first to say that. He knows a thing or two about major college sports. He goes to Mississippi State, who is in the SEC, which is a legitimate major conference in all of college sports. Football, basketball, you name it. They're a big deal in every single sport. Now, we had an interesting conversation, not just me and him, um, the first baseman from Appalachian State, who uh, his name's Robbie, and the Kennesaw State shortstop, his name's Tyler. And a couple other guys on the team also joined this discussion because the, the shortstop decided to make a claim that the Big East was just a mid-major conference. Now, for other sports, I kind of understand the argument. Uh, you know, obviously with baseball, this part the sport that they know a thing or two about because they play the big teams from the SEC and the Big 12 and 
the West Coast teams from the Pac-12 and the Big West. They know a thing or two about that. When it comes to basketball, though, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the Big East is a major power basketball conference. And for some reason, this guy decided to say and still try to defend his argument that they're just a mid-major. Now, school size, okay, you could, fair enough. The Big East schools aren't really that big. They're all private schools. And all of them, except for Butler, is in one way or another Catholic. I, I understand that. They're not big schools. I totally get that. However, they do, for the most part, all have major college basketball programs. Villanova has won the national championship twice in the last four seasons. Every team in the new Big East since 2014, all of them except for DePaul, has made it to the NCAA tournament at least once. Matter of fact, now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure every single team has made it at least twice to the big dance since the new Big East came to fruition at the start of 2013-14. And again, the only team that hasn't made it out of the Big East during that span is is DePaul. But now I think about it, Georgetown hasn't made it twice. They only made one appearance in 2015, so I stand corrected on myself. Anyways, not to mention, and I remember seeing a YouTube clip over the summer about UConn coming back to the Big East and this CBS Sports Radio host, whose name eludes me for now, he said that the Big East didn't need UConn but rather the UConn needed the Big East. And in a way, I kind of think he's right. And some clown decided to comment, the UConn's going to make the Big East relevant again. UConn, Big East needed UConn. They need, Big East can't draw. Um, Take a look at the Big East tournament attendance numbers over the last four years, because you'll be shocked by the attendance figures. Now, 2014 and 15, I get that there wasn't enough buzz around the Big East because there's still, in a way, a new league and it still needed to generate some buzz and essentially um, establish some credibility for itself. However, 2016, once that Big East championship game that year between Seton Hall and Nova sold out for the first time since realignment, that got the ball rolling for the Big East because after that, um, 2017 and 2018, they sold out both the semifinals and the championship game. And in 2019, they sold out every single session except for the day session in the quarterfinal round on Thursday of tournament week. I believe it was March 14th. Don't quote me on that. Pretty sure it was March 14th. But anyway... Even then, still got over 19,000 fans in the garden that day. You won't see a mid-major conference doing that at Madison Square Garden. The Big Ten couldn't even do that. They only sold out the semifinals in the championship game, and the Big Ten supposed to be miles ahead of the Big East. But then again, Big Ten and ACC, they tried to take over 
New York City, where the ACC tried to take their act to Brooklyn. Even then, they've had a bit of a tough time drawing attendance, except for the semifinals and the championship game. Big Ten tried to take over the Garden. They moved their conference schedule a week ahead just to make sure that they could play their conference tournament in the Garden the week before the Big East, which shows that the Big East still runs New York, and they always will, and that's how it's been for 40 years. Now, they didn't need UConn to draw that much attendance. Providence, Villanova, Creighton, Xavier. I mean, DePaul played in a sold-out game at Madison Square Garden. UConn didn't. Granted, I get it, DePaul was playing St. John's that night in the first round of the biggest tournament last year, but still, the Garden was sold out. For first-round games between the four worst teams in the Big East during a down year, as some might put it. And the crazy thing was with the Big East, I'm pretty sure they were the only conference in college basketball last year that didn't have, in the regular season, a single team with a losing record. Every team was above 500. Even DePaul! And if that doesn't prove that the Big East is a legitimate power conference in basketball, I don't know what does. And not to mention, the Big East is one of only a handful of conferences in college basketball that can say that they play their conference championship game on network television. The only other ones are the Big Ten and the Missouri Valley that I know for a fact do. And I believe the AAC does as well. And maybe the Atlantic 10. But the Big East, they have had their Big East Championship game on Fox each of the last four years. And I'm pretty sure that tradition, as long as they have their contract with Fox, I'm pretty sure that's going to keep going until college sports isn't even in existence anymore. I don't even know if that, that, that might go on until the very end of the earth, for all I care. But I'm telling you, as long as the Big East has that TV deal with Fox, they will continue to have that guaranteed conference championship game on network television until that expires. And that's a big deal. And it's not just because of the deal. It's because the Big East is a damn good basketball conference. That produces damn good basketball on TV. It's ultra-competitive. There are a lot of tremendous games that are on the network's air throughout the year, and even some of the non-conference games that make Fox. Seton Hall, Kentucky last year. I'll make the argument that was the game of the year in college basketball last year. And I'll be honest, the game that won the ESPY for game of the year, I believe it was LSU. It might have been LSU-Texas A&M, the seven-overtime game of football. But even then, there was no doubt in my mind that Seton Hall, Kentucky was the game of the year in all of sport from the middle of July 2018 until the ESPY Awards this year. No doubt in my mind, it was by far the best college basketball game of the entire season. But anyways, and not to mention, if your conference in a 10-team league, if you're sending at least half of your teams to the tournament almost every year, that establishes your status as a major conference in college basketball. When it comes to college hoops, you obviously have the power five, but to me, 
the Big East makes it a power six in college hoops. And there is absolutely no disputing that. So that wraps it up for this week's edition of the Igloo. We'll be back next week to break down Marquette and Providence's schedule. And I'm going to have a special guest, Andrew Goldstein, a TV news anchor out in Wisconsin and a good friend of mine. We go way back, went to broadcasting camp together in Boston way back in the day. I'll have him on to talk a little bit about Marquette with their schedule, how the team's looking, and what they need to do to really overcome the loss of the Hauser brothers and establish themselves as a top 25 program again this season. So until next week, this is Tim Best signing off. Thanks for tuning into the Igloo once again.